0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier Early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: Yeah, just that very, very persistent and powerful and expansive capacity that we have as human beings to connect and to let that connection be real and felt and vibrant and alive And we can tone our nervous systems to actually even be able to feel love in a moment and experience and not have to take anything with us. That we don't have to take the person away with us. We don't don't have to marry them or date them or even become friends with them. We can just love them right there at the grocery counter. And that be it. And then we become love.
0: From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. All righty. Hello. Two little announcements before we dive in. First, uh, don't forget TPH Live, 10% Happier Live, which we do uh, every weekday, 3 Eastern, noon Pacific. It's a uh, quick sanity break to break up your day. We do five minutes of meditation suitable for absolute beginners or seasoned pros. Uh, We bring on a great meditation teacher every day to lead the meditation and then we take questions from you all live. And then if you don't want to watch it live, you can watch it uh, anytime uh, inside the 10% Happier app or on our YouTube page. Just search for 10% Happier on YouTube or go to 10% com slash live. All the links will be in the show notes. The other announcement is that, uh, I, as you may know from listening to the show during uh, during the pandemic, we've been pretty focused on offering free resources. And uh, we started by offering free access to the 10% Happier app to healthcare workers. Then we rolled it out to people who work in grocery stores or are involved in uh, delivering food. This week, we want to expand it even further to teachers who are doing unbelievably hard work to educate our children under deeply strange and suboptimal circumstances. So if you're a teacher or if you know somebody's a teacher, you can send them this link. Uh, the link is 10% dot com slash care, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash care. Again, that link will be in the show notes. Okay, let's let's do the show. What will we be like uh, when this thing is finally over? Will we be even more fearful and divided or Is there a realistically rosier scenario? This is just one of the subjects we explore in a wide-ranging conversation with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. We also talk about the disutility of guilt in the face of all of the horror we're witnessing in the time of COVID. And we talk about how to reclaim the word love from the land of hopeless cliché. I really enjoyed this conversation, especially how it warmed up as we went. By way of background, Reverend Angel is the author of such books as Radical Dharma and Being Black. She's the second black woman to be recognized as a teacher in the Japanese Zen lineage. One of her main areas of interest is how to apply meditation to social issues such as race and climate and economic inequality all salient right now in the, in the era of this new coronavirus. A lot of people think meditation and activism are two separate things, but Reverend Angel argues that, and this is a quote here, without inner change, there can be no outer change. In this chat, we start with some big picture issues, and then we increasingly move toward more personal stuff. She's one of these people who gets even more fascinating the more time you spend with her. So here we go, Reverend Angel Kyoto-Williams. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's nice to see you over this internet connection here.
1: Yeah, it's good to see you, <laughs> and uh, good to be here. And yeah, it feels like some some. It feels like this has been a long time coming, and it's fascinating to be here in the midst of this time.
0: Yes, we've been trying to get you on the show for a long time, and I'm glad we finally did. And uh, we couldn't be in a more urgent time. Mm. Well, let me just start by, I'm curious, how, how are you doing in, with all of this tumult?
1: Mm. I split time between California and New York, and I was in California when it really got going. I actually just left New York uh, not too long ago. So we were one of the first ones to go into the shelter in place, and I was also in the midst of preparing to move. And so it started out with this really... A surreal sense of like what is happening. I felt like I was you know in jello or something. Mm. Time was doing this very odd thing, and yeah, I I really feel this persistent sense of a of a kind of I've been saying it's like a koan. It's like this riddle, of, you know, of very very opposite kinds of feelings, like a dynamic tension between both. Like I'm really fine. And, you know, blessed and graced to have a space that I'm in and so aware of how many people don't. I'm in California and I am a New Yorker. And so I feel the sort of open space and all of that of, you know, where I'm located here and really feel the tension and awareness of my hometown, uh, you know, just in such pain and you know, watching the news and briefings and so on. I'm a New Yorker at heart. My family is in new york and and so I'm just feeling this tension of a kind of somewhere like I look out my window and it's almost idyllic and I'm concerned for my elder parents and family and um and the world and yeah, I'm in the tension.
0: I I really see a lot of myself in that. Obviously, there are massive inconveniences to being locked up, but it seems even crass to even point that out when Mm -hmm. I take in the fact that my life, our life as a family is quite comfortable. We're healthy. We have everything we need. And I look at Uh, the news and I or I report the news as a newsman. (laughs) And I see people who are waiting online for hours Mm. to get food, um, you know, from food pantries. Or I see frontline doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals getting sick. And Mm. uh, there's this horrifying story about a ER doctor who took her own life, um, who, you know, my, my wife used to work with that that mm. woman. And mm. uh, my wife is a physician who's not currently practicing. So, yeah, what do you – you call the tension. I For me, it feels a little bit – and maybe this, this is going to speak to my lack of uh, meditative attainments here, but I feel guilty at times. Mm, mm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I feel like it's a dynamic tension. Guilt, I think – yeah, maybe, maybe that's, that's, that's practice. Not, I don't know if it's meditative attainment, but a lot of like, you know, drilling in of the uselessness of, you know, hanging out in that particular emotion and I don't, you know, hang out in the joy and, you know, ease either, right? I live in, the, so I'm living in the tension. And I feel like that, that feels true to so, oh, so many scale the scales, you know, are amazing of like really my little tiny world and experience and right here outside of the window and, you know, right out into the big world. And so I feel that tension and I feel that tension, not, not only my own uh, feeling of tension, but I feel like I have a, I'm generating some tension for myself too. And the way that I see that play out for myself is I'm So relieved for the earth and the impact that we have on it and really seeing the truth of clearly we have an impact because we can see so much of nature and and earth, you know, arising and returning. And, you know, there are amazing species here that are, you know, showing up on the coasts of Thailand and all these kinds of things. You can see mountains that you've never, you know, not been able to see and so on. So I feel like, oh, what a relief. And also, you know, that means there's for people that live day to day, getting their income and their ability to eat from day to day, like how that's so uh, terribly painful for them. So I want us both to be in this suspended state. Someone called it a, a timeout. <laughs> I call it a compulsory retreat. <laughs> I want us to be in there long enough to lose the muscle memory or forget the muscle memory of just turning back to what it is that we've always been doing. So we can just look and see and say, whoa, this is us. This is what we're doing to our habitat, to the ecosystem that we live in. And I also know that that is suffering, more suffering for more people. So I've been saying that it's like, I feel like I'm praying for suffering. I'm both praying for the awakening of those of us that can do something about it and shift how we live and what we ask for of our governments and institutions and so on and i also know that that suffering bears on particular people more strongly like th- what it will take for those of us that are moving and shaking and have this ease that you and i are talking about and access and convenience and you know relative health what it will take for us to wake up is 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 likely to bring more suffering on the people that can't take any more because it was already too much.
0: When you say praying for suffering, mm. what, what do you mean by that? Because I know you don't want
2: vulnerable
0: right. communities who to suffer. So what what can you unpack that?
1: Yeah, the praying is the praying for our for the awakening of those of us that are less vulnerable to wake up to the suffering. And that means that the the time that I I fear, I hold, or I suspect it would take would bring more suffering onto the more vulnerable communities. And I I live in this tension a lot of the difference between the immediate and the long game, if you will, right? What is happening right now and needs to be tended to and how people are impacted and advocacy and so on. And as a practitioner, the long game of doing the deep inner work where we are transformed from the inside out, there's a luxury, if you will, a privilege in even being able to have that view. And it is part of my view that the work that we need to do that I think that ultimately transforms how we live and operate in our lives, in our own lives, and therefore society tends to require In my experience, in my practice, a longer path requires work. You know, we have to like go in there and do the work in the meantime, you know, things are burning.
0: What's your? I mean, I'm going to put you in the uncomfortable position of asking you to prognosticate. But do you think we're going to come out of this with the privileged among us having undergone the the aforementioned awakening, or do you think we're just going to revert back to our old ways and we won't be able to see those mountains again, and the uh, the the species off the coast of Thailand will recede, et cetera, et cetera?
1: I think some of us. Already have and will change, whether it is enough of us is the question and whether we are, those of us that have that kind of shift are positioned, how we're positioned has a lot to do with how much we will go back. I don't think there's any such thing as going back. I think we're forever changed in all sorts of ways that we can't even imagine at this point. Do I think that we will leave space for the dolphins to come to the coast? No, I don't. I think that the muscle memory of our habits of comfort and access and privileges and the way that it was are are too deep for it to have an immediate impact with, that we can see. But I also trust in more than, you know, my lifetime, so to speak. I think that it will be make an indelible impression, and it already has on so many of us. That we will no longer be able to live quite as free, carefree (laughs) of of the idea of how much impact we're having and that we can do something about it, especially politically. You know, I was saying to someone, there was one day and, and it showed up on the, you know, an article, I think it was The Times, and the Fed was saying, you know, the printing press is open. And I was like, wow. Of my whole life, I've been told that, like, that's not possible. You can't do that, right, for whatever complex economic reasons that I don't understand. But why can't it stay open for people that, you know, are sheltering in place with no shelter? Why can't it stay open for people to, you know, have access to food and housing and health care and all of the things, you know? So I'm living with that in a more uh, immediate way. That I don't think I'll ever be able to get out of my body, I don't, and I don't want to.
0: Right, but the question is: I mean, you were already pretty aware of you had a a, a global view going into this that may have been accentuated or heightened, but mm-hmm. there was a lo- there were a lot of people on autopilot in the world, mm-hmm. and I just wonder. I'm just curious. I, I think about nine eleven. Mm-hmm. This changes everything. Mm-hmm. We said changed a lot for me i became a war correspondent after 9-11 and Mm. it definitely changed my life but i don't know if we aside from the airport security and maybe some (laughs) islamophobia i what what were the deep structural societal changes that came about from that
1: right yeah i you know i think that the the sense of where power is located has everything to do with it. And if the people that are in that kind of middle space, I think that there are a lot of people that aren't necessarily predisposed. Something happens with silence and quietude. And that is the tension of the prayer for more time that would result in more impact. Because without the access to the same kind of busy making, we we as human a human species, I think, begin to glimpse things that we hadn't glimpsed before. Whether it is sustained long enough for that to happen is, I think, the question that we're we're really dancing around. And I don't think it will happen, it'll be long enough for enough of the right people to do something meaningful immediately, but I do think it will change the the. The debates that we have about what is possible and what is not possible, what we impact and what we don't impact. We can't put it back in the box and lie to ourselves and say, we are not causing (laughs) the climate change. You know, we're not impacting the climate. There is not a severe amount of inequity that results in certain people. Even though the virus knows no borders and knows no bounds, It knows how to flow along the structures that we've created in society so that it burdens particular people more heavily. And I do think that there's enough of us with the conversation about, you know, something sort of leaning towards a socialist democracy like, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders brought about. I think more of us are aware of those conversations. Black lives matter. All of the things. We've been primed. So you're saying I've been primed in particular ways, but I also think that we've collectively been primed. Not everyone... Right? And it's never everyone, but enough people that it will change the conversation.
0: You, you were talking about, I think you phrased it really nicely about how <laughs> I've heard this, this, the virus described as a great equalizer, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're all in, in a vacuum, somewhat equally vulnerable to the, depending on our health status to the virus. But we're exposed to different degrees depending on our... You know, level of income, our, 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 uh, where we live or whether we have a house at all, et cetera, et cetera. And as you said, the virus has been flowing along the structures that predated the virus. That's and so that to me strikes me as an area where I hope we don't go back to sleep on that. Mm-hmm. And I suspect as, Somebody who's, I don't know if I would call myself an optimist or a pessimist or a realist or a journalist or whatever, <laughs> but the conversation that's happening now around inequality seems to be heightened in a way that's, I hope will be useful. What is your thought on that specifically?
1: Well, I think those conversations are happening at different strata. There are different prisms of that conversation happening that is going to keep the conversation. So an example is the way in which large national corporations are taking advantage of the loan program that was meant for small businesses. It's not the kind of conversation that I'm having necessarily, but it is about inequity. and It is about almost the reverse, right? The way that the structures have allowed for the uh, resources to flow upward, rather than to rest with the people that they were intended for. So I think this question and the whole system being laid bare for all of us from our different political stripes and locations to see and go, oh, this inequity thing really makes a difference. The wealthy folks that can run off into their second homes onto an island somewhere or out wherever the wherever is, and bring their caretakers and so on, and those of us that are stuck in our homes with our children. I don't have any children. I, I just really like bow to the people that you know are in homes with children that have to go to school. But I'm saying that wherever we are, we can see that the inequities create conditions in which the things that we thought were even and they could just, you know, it's a virus and it can touch all of us. I, I just don't think we'll be able to tell ourselves those stories anymore. And I don't care what our political persuasion is. I think that that has been laid bare. We will do just different things with it depending on what our political you know ideological orientation is. but I think we will not be able to tell ourselves the myth that our <laughs> the structures that we have and that we have created and the systems that we have made create an enormous divide between the haves and have-nots. And I think that people, from all sorts of perspectives, will feel more intolerant of that reality.
0: It's interesting. I I hope you're right. You know, I think a little bit about loving-kindness meditation, mm. uh, which I don't think they really have in the Zen tradition, but you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about that. But in loving-kindness meditation, you systematically envision beings in different categories like, mm. you know, um, yourself, a mentor, a close friend. And one of the categories is a neutral person, somebody you often overlook. Mm. And I feel realize the neutral people... Mm. are really being thrown into stark relief in our consciousness in a powerful way during this pandemic, because it's the people manning the cashiers at the grocery store or delivering your food or delivering your packages or delivering your mail Mm. who are really in danger. And we rely on them to survive right now. And so that to me is a kernel of optimism that there's a certain amount of waking up happening around these people who may heretofore have been neutral.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I'm practice agnostic in in many ways. So, uh, <laughs> loving kindness, uh, sending and taking in the, from the Tibetan tradition. I'm I'm fond of the exploring the different practices, and so uh, definitely tonglen has been a big part of my own practice. And you know, I think of my practice and relationship to practice not so much about my tradition and what we did in my tradition. It's great to reference those things, but really, you know, what are the tools that are available in the whole toolkit of meditation and awareness and embodiment practices that allow me to be more present to, you know, the reality that I'm facing? So I love Tonglen. I love loving kindness.
0: Can you describe uh, Tonglen for folks who might not be familiar with it?
1: Yeah, it's sort of uh, often called sending and taking and uh, sort of translated to the notion of Sending and taking. And so it is this exchanging of oneself for others in terms of positionality with the same quality of people that are far from you and people that are near to you and people that are neutral. And so I think a lot of, in the West in particular, a lot of the practices have fused together so that we don't necessarily have, quote unquote, such pure practices anymore. And, and I don't think we should. We are, we are a fusion, And so loving kindness and Tonglen have kind of, you know, merged in many ways. But the core ideas are the same of this sense of, I I think that what Tonglen brings is this exchanging oneself. So it's not just sending, there's also taking, like taking on people's suffering and taking on their positionality and taking on their location and, you know, sending them positive energy and, you know, health and well-being and all of those things. But also taking... Right, taking on. And I really appreciate that, especially for that kind of acute awareness of what other people's location is. And I have to say that I'm prone to understanding for myself that it's important for me to put myself in other people's shoes, right? Not just to position myself as a practitioner, as a teacher, as a meditator, as a person that has access to these practices as just the one that is giving and can send something but also that i can take on some of the suffering of the world
0: so the practice works if i i haven't done much of it where you breathe in on the in breath you're breathing in somebody's suffering and in the out mm-hmm. breath you're breathing out the wish for them to be free from suffering is that's, that how it works
1: that's right yes
0: So we're talking about meditation right now, but we spent a big chunk of the beginning of this conversation talking about politics, societal structures, uh, the pandemic. And I suspect there are members of our audience who might be thinking, well, I come to this show not for politics, but for how to be happier, you know, uh, for 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 some dharma, for some for Mm. for meditation. And uh, I've heard that that (laughs) beef many times. What do you say to that?
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't I, I say that I didn't even recognize as, us as changing any location. I, I think that these are the same conversations to me that I think of when I think of people, for instance, that perhaps were will not wake up and not become aware and they're not paying attention to the fact that the postman is in danger and the person at the at the counter. I I send wishes for their liberation, really, for their awakening so that they, are, they will become more aware and not in a way that is about their having to experience devastation in their own lives, but just that there's a kind of breathing into, wow, I just hope that whatever it is that's keeping you on autopilot will just drop for a moment so that you can really be present to what's happening and what's around you. Because I can't imagine that that walling off is not a result of some fundamental pain and some fundamental conditions that have that have made it too difficult to face to face reality, to face life as it is. And I'm not talking about with an ideology. Just face a human. There, there's a human, and they're behind a counter, and their life is in greater risk because they're doing their job and have to feed their children to serve you. And for me, that is a meditation. Um, meditation is not just the thing that you know. I pull out a cushion for. You know, my practice is threaded and woven throughout. I don't think that I would have the same, if one wants to call it, political, you know, outlook or orientation, if it wasn't for meditation. Th- these are just one thing for me.
0: So I'm hearing like an inseparability between meditation slash Dharma slash Buddhism and politics or maybe and everything.
1: Yeah, total inseparability. I, you know, I don't know, think so much about it as Buddhism. Uh, I really distinguish my Buddhism from my Dharma, right? And so I I distinguish my Zen from my Dharma. I think of a Dharma in this more uh, comprehensive space of like, you know, life that is unfolding and the, and the way that we meet the truth of that, of our experience near experience, far experience. So universal truths that we're all just in this experience together and how we function in that experience together and how we show up, whether we're present or ill-present or checked out, whether we are ready to confront our own lives and whether it is that we are awake or numbed out, that's my practice, right? But all of those things, yeah, they're just one thing. I can't imagine that the, there's some kind of part of it that's like outside of the realm of my practice relationship to truth. I, you know, I think of the you know dharma as the truth, and so what is outside of truth? I don't mean you know facts, not fact, right? What is outside of truth? There's nothing outside of the truth of all of life that is unfolding. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it just goes outside. Or because it's not convenient, for instance, to have aligned relationship to how I relate to other people, even if I really disagree with their political operating in the world. They do not escape my dharma.
0: When you say I separate my Zen from my dharma, what does that mean?
1: I mean, I separate the... The construct of like a particular tradition or a particular religious or spiritual belief system from the more comprehensive idea of I'm just walking this path of life. And I use this particular lens or I have used or I was my um, formal practice unfolded with this lens, but I understand that it is a lens and I don't take that lens to be the entire thing. I don't take Buddhism to be the entire thing as a black woman growing up in the US there's no way that I can not be also simultaneously immersed in in Christian understanding Baptist you know the all the practices and church goings and not not goings of my family and all of the people around me um uh, so you know I'm I'm complex and I hold all the complexities and I don't mistake though my particular you know, it's like my preferences, you know, vanilla is just not the only flavor I, or chocolate, chocolate chip <laughs> is not the only flavor there is. It's just a flavor. It's not ice cream. It's just a flavor of ice cream. And so Buddhism is my, you know, maybe my flavor. It's the flavor that I chose for my unfolding. But I often think of this idea that I read somewhere along the line of, uh, in, you know, it's very much in the Buddhist um Thinking is that once you cross, take the boat right and cross the other shore to liberation. You leave the boat behind, so the Buddhism is the boat, and I don't need to carry the boat around with me. So I'm not walking around telling everybody to be invested in Buddhism. I'm telling people to get in touch with the the truth of their life in in whatever form that takes.
0: Here's another. Question just based on a specific word you chose. What do you mean by liberation?
1: Yeah, I mean we could we could really go go somewhere with that. For me, when I say liberation in that context, when I'm talking about spiritual life, or you know, spiritual life is not even separate from you know, mundane life. But I think of spiritual life as when we turn our attention intentionally towards how am I doing this, right? How am I doing this life thing? And in that regard, I think of liberation as being able to distinguish and have choice around the difference between experience and how we think about experience or how we feel about experience, that there is just experience and it just is. But what we often do with our experiences is we conflate them for who we are and so we become our experiences we become our emotions we become our thoughts liberation is to get free of the tyranny of those fabrications of the mind <laughs> however those fabrications unfold and so the the fabrication i'm i am in the relative uh, especially social world that we live in right now in this particular reality i am black and i'm also not black i'm just uh, this human being <laughs> that has all of these reflections and thoughts that come about from being raised inside of of a social construct that tells me that I'm Black and tells me what I can and cannot do, who I can and cannot love and be connected to, what I can achieve and not achieve, and, and all the ways that I push back against those things as well, right? But even the ways that I push back are also just as much constructs and ideas. And when I get on a cushion and I just rest in my belly and my breath. I'm not Black or female or independent or liberal or Republican. I'm just awareness and spaciousness. And I don't walk around being awareness and spaciousness all the time. I bring that knowing and the experience of that that lives now in my body to how I relate to other people, how I relate to life.
0: So liberation, if I'm hearing you correctly, is part of it, at least, is seeing that all these thoughts and emotions, whether they be culturally injected or handed down from your ancestors or whatever, random, you don't need to be owned by them. You can see them as you can see them kind of warmly, non-judgmentally as phenomena arising that you don't have to just act out blindly.
1: Exactly. I don't even know if I see them as warmly, just like is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That too. I think of it as that too. And for me, liberation is being able to distinguish that, oh, that is just experience. And I now know the difference between experience and my reaction or response to experience. And then I get to have choices about what I'll do with the experience. So I don't recede off into the background and now do nothing about nothing (laughs) just because I understand that those thoughts and emotions and so on and experiences are not who I am. I think of the liberation quite specifically as the combination of both the awareness that I'm not those things and therefore don't have to respond to them. And also the choice to respond or not respond and to do that out of the place that is free from the imagination or the projection or the delusion, you would say in the classic language, the delusion that I'm those things.
0: More 10% Happier after this. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans i want to go back to two comments that you made at separated by many minutes and see if i can tie them together Early on in the conversation, I told you that I was feeling some guilt, mm. and you said that that's probably not a useful thing to feel. And then you later talked about the fact that there are many people who overlook, quote-unquote, neutral people or, mm. uh, you know, the, the folks who are so often around us but we may not pay much attention to them, the f- delivering food or delivering mail or working a cash register – and you said that there may be some pain that mm. people are trying to avoid by not seeing these people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I wonder if guilt is what people are trying to avoid or what your thoughts are on all of that.
1: Yeah, I think we don't know how to feel. And so guilt is where we go. Like I, guilt is, I think, a response to. Mm, a sense that whatever the experience that you have shouldn't be the case. Right. And we have a lot of those. And depending on our position, like this shouldn't be the case. And so we go to anger. This shouldn't be the case. And I'm in the upper hand or upper, you know, the better location. And so this shouldn't be the case. Therefore I go to guilt. Uh, I think what we're avoiding is the pain of just letting it in that, There is this separation, that there is this brokenness, that there is this terrible inequity or, you know, or whatever it is that we're feeling guilty about. I think people avoid feeling guilty and so they numb out. And I think further, the reason that we avoid the contact with people is because the guilt will bring with it the experience of pain about the truth of that right? That that is so, that this is the case, that these are the conditions. And it's not a big political, you know, analysis that we do. There's just like, oh, this is like this. And we don't want to feel that. So guilt is the thing that we put in between. Oh, I just feel their pain. I just suffer with them. I feel with them. And The paradox is that that is exactly from whence compassion arises. Hmm. The guilt is a tightening up against the direct feeling of the suffering, of the pain. It's the direct feeling of, like...
0: In a way guilt just makes it about you.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say, but I was I was going to give a few seconds before I turned that around. Uh because it is. It's I mean guilt moves us away from our direct experience and makes the experience makes it about uh how we feel about that experience. It and so it's not the direct experience. We're not actually Guilt is not the experience that we have. Guilt is the response that we have to experience. And so that's what I mean about liberation. That liberation is the will force, if you will, to actually experience life as it is, to be in the pain, to be struck with like, oh, this is so... And then our brain doesn't go, it's imbalanced. It's just, we feel the pain. It's just raw, naked, like, oh, ugh." Oh. And we don't want that, and so we stick guilt in there. And then we have something to distract ourselves from the immediacy of feeling that pain. And then when we don't want the guilt, we numb out completely, so that we neither have guilt nor do we have feeling with suffering, which, though, the flip side of that feeling with suffering is compassion.
0: I mean, feeling with is compassion, you could say. that's. It's I mean, I think exactly. that that's— that's exactly what compassion, if you break it down to its roots, means, right? Yeah. The well, feeling, it's, feeling it's with.
1: particularly feeling with the pain, feeling, feeling yeah. with. Yes. So it's not just the feeling with the, of any kind of feeling with, you know, that would be more along the lines of empathy, right? That we have a kind of resonance with, so we can resonate with happiness and joy and we can resonate with anger and aggression and all kinds of things. But compassion is quite specifically uh, James Doty told me this, a neurosurgeon and author. Uh, it's quite specifically feeling with pain,
0: and embedded in it because empathy can be very painful to the empathizer and, mm-hmm. and disempowering in some ways. Embedded mm-hmm. in compassion and, and what we is actually a desire to be helpful. That's right. And so it is therefore an ennobling and empowering state. And it doesn't even mean you have to do anything in particular, Mm. because it can all be playing out in your mind in a meditation session, either doing loving kindness or the aforementioned Tonglen. But it puts you in a position of not just feeling it, which is what we're so afraid of, Mm. but feeling it and really wishing that the person whose pain you're feeling not feel the pain.
1: That's right. And... You know, you said ennobling and empowering, and I would say it is ennobling. It may not necessarily feel empowering because you may also feel the deep tragedy of not being able to do something about it. And I think many of us fear that that will become overwhelming. It is ennobling though, because it deepens our sense of capacity for more difference, more feeling, more connection with humanity. And so... Our fixation tends to be, oh, if I want it to be different and I don't want them to feel that pain, I should be able to do something about it. And so if I can't do something about it, then that's not going to be empowering to me. And so uh, we avoid that experience on top of it. So it's not that feeling suffering with and wanting something to do is going to give us, you know, the magic key to do something about us and then we'll feel great. It is that it will deepen our human relationship. We will be deeper our, in our, our relationship with all species really. will The feeling of that actually gives us access to our own greater humanity. Just the fact of it. So I don't know if it's empowering in the ordinary sense that we think of empowering, like we think of empowering as being something about us that it's going to give us something like, whoa. But it does empower, if you will, our humanity. It, it deepens us. It It makes us more available.
0: That's exactly what I was driving. Let me give you a small example. So this morning, my wife and I went food shopping. And I think my normal move as a frosty New Englander, totally, you know, self-obsessed, checking his phone all the time is just to just ignore everybody because Mm -hmm. that's just how I'm wired and I'm not proud of it, but I'm being honest. Now done a couple of years of like pretty um, steady loving kindness meditation, much of it under the tutelage of our mutual friend Spring Washam, mm. uh, the great meditation teacher who's also on the West Coast. And I just noticed that there was a subtle difference this morning when we were checking out with the cashier. That I was just chit-chatting with her mm. and I was aware of luckily she's got a plexiglass barrier and a mask. And but I was aware of, you know, this is a not not an awesome situation she's in. Mm-hmm. I can't fix it for her, mm-hmm. but I can look her in the eye and mm-hmm. ask her how she's doing. And to me, that feels much more powerful than the sort of enfeebling mm-hmm. retreat mm-hmm. to just what about me-ness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in Buddhism, there's a term dukkha, and I'm sure many people have spoken about dukkha. And I translate dukkha in, in modern times to help people to really understand what we're kind of getting at is contraction, right? So you talked about like that, you know, enfeebling experience of, you know, getting small, kind of withdrawing, tucking yourself away into your own numbness. And, and that's a contraction. We, we move away from life rather than what you did this morning is you presenced yourself to life as it is with no imagination that what it means to be present and what it means to be human is that I can fix people's everything everywhere I go. Uh, and, and that is, especially over time, deeply empowering. It, it is deeply empowering. It doesn't give us some kind of magic wand to fix everything that happens, but it is deeply empowering to know that what I can offer in any situation is my presence and, and my connection.
0: I'm going to throw in an even more loaded term. <laughs> and I've been talking a lot about this because I'm t- sort of testing my ideas about this, but I'll throw in the word love. Mm. So I think love is just often used, uh, misused. I mean, it's it's or it's only used for a narrow band of what love can actually mean. Mm-hmm. So we talk about love pretty much as romantic love or familial love, big, all caps love. Mm-hmm. But why not think about it as just our innate, human, evolutionarily wired capacity to care about other people and ourselves, given that I think that love is omnidirectional.
1: Mm -hmm. So, does that track for you? (laughs) That's exactly what I talk about. Uh, I stole it from you, probably. No, yeah, (laughs) no, I'm sure. You know, I mean, I think that that's what's happening is that we're coming to this, right? And we're this sort of expanse of the notion of love. I mean, bell hooks does as brilliant a job as any one. It's, uh speaking about uh love and seizing love back from just this kind of you know mushy, very very narrow as you said place that is about like how I feel about other people and what I'm gonna get out of that romantic relationship or or you know even filial love, you know parents and so on, but yeah, just that very, very persistent and powerful and expansive capacity that we have as human beings to connect and to let that connection be real and felt and vibrant and alive and we can tone our nervous systems to actually even be able to feel love in a moment and experience and not have to take anything with us that we don't have to take the person away with us we don't get to we don't have to marry them or date them or even become friends with them. We can just love them right there at the grocery counter, and that be it. And then we become love. We become these walking embodiments of the principle of love. So we actually become more human. We become more true we talk about that i talk about that as radical dharma right it's like a whole truth the whole truth is that we this is what we are when we allow ourselves to feel with with other people when we allow ourselves to feel our own selves and feel what we're actually feeling that is what happens which i think is in some ways what we're afraid of hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Like you talked about this, you used that phrase "becoming love." I I, I feel like I'm intermittently becoming love uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of the time I'm still like looking at my iPhone or like wondering how many likes I have in my ro- most recent tweet or whatever stupid obsession I'm dealing with <laughs> at the moment. So I mean, I think I feel like I have my moments of having some generosity of spirit, but it's certainly not perpetual.
1: Well, I think that that's what the nature of practice is, right? It's sort of like blip, 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 and, and they begun So the combination of the practice and, and, and the feedback loop of you having the experience of like, bing, you know, the waking up and, and feeling uh, like completely alive in that moment of intermittent love Uh, becomes its own feedback loop that is like a little bit more like, Mel, maybe I'll put the phone down this time, and maybe I'll Mm -hmm. put the phone down this time. So it it creates this momentum. And in the same way that we have momentum towards, you know, all sorts of absurdities, including (laughs) checking our likes, uh, we can um, develop with practice a momentum towards being love. And of course, it will drop out like everything else drops out, because that's also part of how we're wired as well but it becomes more of where we inhabit, more of where we abide by than less.
0: Yeah, there's neuroscience here. I mean, I, I think about the way my friend Dr. Judson Brewer, who's been on the show before, talks about the feedback loop, which mm-hmm. is that he, he talks about... Um, What's the term Um, BF Skinner sort of uh, uh, operant conditioning? Mm. You put a rat in a box, a Skinner box, and it'll figure out how to avoid the electric shock and go to the food. Mm. I don't know. I'm probably messing this all up. But anyway, (laughs) the brain learns what feels better and Mm -hmm. optimizes for that. And I can tell you from my experience that it feels better to talk to the woman at the checkout counter than it does to check Twitter and so over time with it fueled by formal practice in my experience mm-hmm. the brain learns to tune into what to do and to tune into what feels better.
1: Yeah, and I would say that that the fact that it feels better is telling of what our essential nature is. Because why why does it feel better to do that than to contract or to pull away or to just you know, check out and say, like, I don't, want to, I don't want to feel that. In many of our minds, we've created the idea that that, that wouldn't feel good. And so it's easier actually to check out and is easier, but it's not necessarily consistent with our nature. And we know it's our nature because it does feel good to us. And that is very, 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 very um, hopeful that there is some kind of, it's not just neutral that that sense of connection is not neutral. It's like that actually feels better to us as a species. Yeah, as I said, that's telling of how it is we're fundamentally wired because there's no good reason that little extra work of talking to the person across the counter should feel better other than my nervous system, my wiring says yes to love, yes to connection, yes to care, yes to compassion.
0: So why then do we often fall back into apathy and or outright violence if mm. that's not essential to us, too?
1: We have two sets of uh, core conditioning. So there's like how it is that we respond to our environment in order to continue to live as a species. And that wiring then brings about certain impulses to avoid that are painful and to grasp on things that give us pleasure and so on and so forth, Uh, to resist people that are different and are not familiar, right, that they don't mirror the way that we, in some ways, we see ourselves. And so difference becomes something that we respond to with rejection because it's not as safe if something looks like me or something, uh, you know, sounds like me and so on then that is something that I can recognize. I can recognize when I can't recognize it, then I am going to experience that as less safe. So that is operating and going on. And I think that as you're saying, like that's something that we, op- we move around in the world with. And so we go towards that for survival. But underneath survival is this core sense of how it is that we thrive. And I think that that is the fundamental nature. So even, I would say, even the wanting to survive and the ways that we go to violence, they rest on some kind of love. They rest on a love that is perhaps corrupted in terms of how it is performed and how it is sought after, but it rests on the love for protecting our families. It rests on the the love of wanting to have our way of life, it rests on the love of wanting to be safe so that we can continue to thrive. So I think that love sits underneath all of those other impulses that get us in trouble.
0: If I'm hearing you correctly, even our unskillful behavior is rooted in a, in a caring, often a caring about ourselves, uh, the organism mm-hmm. trying to protect itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and practice helps you kind of disambiguate and get closer to what is underlying all of it, which is that we are wired from an evolutionary standpoint to take care of one another and to, t- mm-hmm. and to take care of ourselves.
1: That's right. I think that practice lets us, and that's what I was saying about the liberation, practice lets us see, oh, this thing that I'm calling anger is actually about I really want that person to notice me, to hear me and to uh, connect with me. And they're not connecting with me, or they're not understanding my needs, and my needs are not getting met, and I really want that. And so, anger is what comes out. But underneath there, if I sit with that in practice, what I get to is like, oh, you know, I wanted to be connected, and and I'm I feel the not seenness that's so necessary in my human species, right? That the sense of being seen is so incredibly important of belonging, of having. Other people care about our needs is very, very powerful for us. When we have a practice formally, meaning we're not in the moment, in the hotness of the moment, which distracts us. So what formal practice gives us is a place in which these things can course through us without the kind of, like, we're not on stage at that moment and forced to perform for the sake of our survival. We know that we're relatively safe sitting on our cushion or chair or whatever it is. And so we can let the scenarios play out and go, oh, you know what? The scenario where I contracted or I looked at my phone didn't feel as good to me as the scenario where I connected and chatted for a little while.
0: Interesting you said that about anger. Now I'm going to make it all about me, so I apologize to everybody. But I see a lot of anger in my own mind coming up, um, and I've heard it described as a secondary emotion that it's 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 a knock on effect of some more fundamental emotion, and I that didn't it's only. S- slowly, because I'm a tough case, starting to dawn on me mm-hmm. that that's true. So I may get angry because somebody says something about me to me that I find totally unacceptable. And so I'm telling myself a story, but that that's unacceptable. That's right. an outrage. You right. can't talk to me like that. But on the deeper level, it feels like what they've said is a, a not seeing of me or an an abnegation because the what they've said sort of nullifies your existence or simplifies. Yes, nullifies my well, existence. As well, always. that's yeah. what
1: they've done. They've, they've threatened your existence, right? It's a, it's a fabrication of your existence, and that's what you get to see in practice. Is that it's just it's all a fabrication. So, but in that moment, you're experiencing the threat to your existence, and and the loss that occurs there, the loss of connection, right? The the maybe maybe I'm not you know, here, real, right? It's like, I'm not true if that thing is going, and so we respond in anger. It's like the truth of me is being, yeah, cut off. That was really a, a very, very important discovery for me in my practice is like, oh, underneath, the way that I said it, and I think I still say it, that there's grief underneath all anger. Mm. That there's grief And the grief is some sense of not having one sense of what one needs met, right? And so we can be, you know, really quite heartbroken. It comes out as rage.
0: I feel like this is a very rich topic now that many of us are cooped up with our family members. and. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know anything about your family structure. Are you alone? Do you have family? What's, yeah, what's I live, going on
1: for you? I, I live with my um, my partner and yeah, the, I mean, the, the level of intensity, you know, we both work, I work at home when I'm not on the road, but I'm often on the road. And so us being in the same space together, uh, you know, really in, in this very sort of, uh, <laughs> we have to figure it all out way. Uh, just raised all of the intensity bars on what it means to be together.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what advice do you have to people about navigating interpersonal relationships in this time, uh, especially based on your own experience of trying to do it?
1: You know, we had a little conversation before, and it was really what I came down to is, It's very counterintuitive that I think the most important thing that you can start with is to be clear about what you need for your own self-care, right? What is it that you need? Do you need to go on more walks? Are you like sitting behind the screen watching Zoom for, you know, untold numbers of hours and your nerves are just frayed to the thinnest possible thing that they can be? And so, you know, your partner, your children, your you know your parents uh, just set you off so figuring that out and really being committed to carrying that out the the best you can in the in the conditions to take more care of yourself gives us more space and more capacity and to be kind because we are all under these strains in different ways and that was the thing that was really Potent for my partner and I is just like, oh, we're in strained, you know, loss of income, livelihood, you know, uncertainty, who knows when this is going to end, so on and so forth. And the remembrance of, and she's going through that too, was very, very necessary for us to hold each other in a kinder way in the the face of being here. Um, Yeah.
0: I find sometimes that it's hard for me to be I can be at my worst with anybody, Mm -hmm. but I find that the quotient of me at my worst is higher with the people people you
1: love. Yes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, It's great because it's in the same way that I was saying that the fact that we feel better when we're in care and and connection with people um, tells us something about our fundamental nature. The fact that we... Let it all hang out with the people that we love tells us something about our love, right? We're allowing ourselves to be seen and letting parts of ourselves that we usually keep under wraps and, you know, tucked away and tightly uh, wound, we let it out with our partners and our people that we love. And it's in some ways a way of saying, please see the whole of me. Please see all of me. It's not necessarily the most skillful, you know, (laughs) in terms of how, and so if we can find better language than tantrums or, you know, yelling uh, for that, that core need. And that was the last thing I was going to say is to find our places of yearning and our, our place of yearning at the end of the day, when you drill them all down is to see and be seen. And so if we can remember right in these times that even though we're all on these little screens and all sorts of things that actually we are in less contact with people and having that, like, you know, the, the juicy pings of like all sorts of, you know, parts of ourselves being affirmed just to acknowledge to ourselves that we want to be seen and that we have needs. And then we can find words to communicate them or ask for what it is that we need. And if we can do that, rather than receding into the place where we feel guilty about what we need, or we feel like we don't deserve what we need, uh, or what we're wanting to, um, you know, feel a little better, you know, maybe I need a massage because I've, you know, been sitting at this chair for too long. And so ask for that, rather than harboring some unmet needs down there. It doesn't mean I'll get what I want, but it does clarify how I communicate the sense that I have something that I need.
0: I'm going to ask for a massage as soon as this is over. Um, <laughs> I was, we'll you know, as that... soon as
1: I said, I was thinking to myself, oh, "I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to like beg forgiveness from your
0: wife." <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to go well. Let me just tell you that. Um, uh, but, but we lest feeling seen, being seen, mm. sound in any way lofty to people. Just look at Instagram and. Mm how the reversible camera has unleashed a bottomless well of narcissism in the uh, human species. So this is not an abstraction. We really have this deep Need. need for validation.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we go back to formal practice, that's also one of the things that happens for us is how we are affirmed shifts you know, we're we're affirmed in the deep rest of this very being that we become comfortable with ourselves as we are. Like we make friends with ourselves as we are, with all of our flaws and foibles, and you know the way that you're act really generously talking about. You know, this is how I am, and I'm a hard case. And you know, even though you're saying those things, there is a friendliness with yourself that is expressing itself, and that also has a show up in the in the world differently, we can talk about how it is that we are and become more comfortable with that. And as we become more comfortable with ourselves and acknowledging our complexity and our weirdness and our strangeness, we actually allow for more complexity, weirdness, and strangeness with other people. And it turns out that people are pretty weird, strange, and complex. And so <laughs> it's a good thing to have uh, co- capacity for it.
0: This has been a great conversation. I had no idea what we're going to talk about, Um, but I'm happy that we talked. Um, Are there areas where I should have steered the conversation that I didn't? Are there things that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about?
1: You know what I would love to talk about? There's so much meditation. You mentioned Instagram and I was thinking about like how much meditation is actually being uh, used. It's kind of the go-to. It's become a real go-to. I mean, there's Zoom and there's meditation and there's meditation on Zoom. And so (laughs) it'd be great for a moment to just skim past the how people are. Yeah. Like how, how it's become, I mean, celebrities are just offering meditation. (laughs) It's just become the thing and that it is entering into our mainstream lexicon in the same way that virtual meetings are, is amazing. And I think worthy of noting. Do
0: you think that I agree with you? Do you think just to bring it full circle, that meditation is becoming increasingly prominent can fuel some of the optimism that you, the the careful optimism that you articulated at the beginning of this conversation about us coming out on the other side of this thing, perhaps a little bit more sensitized to some of the inequalities in, in our community?
1: Yeah, I think this is, it's funny because actually what I think is happening is the fact that people are seeking meditation is already telling of a yearning to be more connected with oneself and to get a hold of oneself in the face of this. So the seeking meditation is its own acknowledgement. And then there's the, what comes out of meditation. So the very fact that so many more people are actually seeking out meditation, people are seeking out meditation trainings and wanting to become, you know, meditation teachers and, you know, I don't want to be a lawyer, I want to be a meditation teacher. I think that that is saying that we are waking up and we are waking up in some very, very critical ways that will give rise to with practice. So if people find their way to meditation, to some kind of formal practice, that yes, it will give way to increasing levels of untenability with imbalance in our own selves, and therefore the world. That's just how that works.
0: What about the the Mick mindfulness critique? That yeah, people are getting interested in meditation, but they're using it like a you know a Xanax, or they're just trying to. It's a self improvement game. It's not about you know being a better citizen, a better human.
1: You know, short of using meditation quite specifically to figure out how you get laser focused to shoot someone off in a drone. Um, I don't really care what how people come to meditation, frankly. I, I think that if you trust, as I do, that at the very bottom of it, that our fundamental nature is one of love and connection. However you get there, whatever, you know, boat, train, automobile, you know, if you flew in on the narcissism plane, uh, you know, to meditation to deal with your anxiety. I think if you maintain a consistent practice that where you arrive is your own true nature. And I think that that true nature is love.
0: I still have my boarding pass from the narcissism plane trip that I
1: took
0: <laughs> to meditation. I'm going to frame that. Uh <laughs> But before we, before we go,
1: but you but you're still going to get to the destination, right? You're still going to get. I, there. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Fair enough. Um, I hope. Um, so before we go, can you for people who I, I suspect there are going to be a lot of people who are going to want to be able to learn more about you, connect mm-hmm. to you in some way? Can you list off things you've written, your website where people can get more Reverend Angel?
1: Yeah, sure. Angel Kyoto, that's with a D, not a T, angelkyotowilliams.com. And you can just put my name in Google and Google will find me everywhere. I think especially for this audience, I wrote a book called Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love and Liberation. And if you can imagine those three things being in a title, then you can imagine the complexity of what we're talking about. And maybe most important is I work with a small studios in New York called Mindful MNDFL Meditation, and we're doing a mindful certification. So if you feel like you want to figure out your own practice, you can check out Mindful MNDFL or Mindful Certification And learn more about deepening your own practice as someone that shares meditation with people in your immediate life. You don't have to want to go and do anything special with it, but just to show up.
0: We'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes. So if you don't have a pen handy, we got you. Yeah. Reverend Angel, this has been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for spending a lot of time with us.
1: Thank you. It's great questions. And I hope everyone just really take care of yourself. Uh, We we have work to do to take care of the world. So right now, let's do the best we can taking care of ourselves.
0: Well said. Speaking of liberation, you are now free from us. (laughs) Big thanks to Reverend Angel. That was a great chat. And uh, again, we want to thank all the teachers who are doing such hard work during this uh, pandemic. Go to 10percent.com slash care, 10percent.com slash care to get free access to the 10% Happier Meditation app. That's also the place to go if you're a healthcare worker or if you work in a grocery store or if you deliver food. We want to hook you up because you're doing so much for us during these times. While I'm thanking people, let's thank the people who Work incredibly hard behind the scenes on this show. Samuel Johns is our producer. Matt Boynton at Ultraviolet Audio is our editor. Maria Wertel is our production coordinator. We get a, a huge amount of incredibly valuable input from uh, 10% colleagues, Nate Toby, Jen Poyant, and Ben Rubin. Also, big thank you to my guys from ABC News, uh, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday with a bonus meditation. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.